Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This fifth season of our podcast is a special deep dive into a case that we covered as it was happening, the trial of Robert Durst for the murder of his good friend and confidant, Susan Berman. In Jury Duty, the Robert Durst prosecutor speaks. We present a series of exclusive interviews with L.A. Deputy District Attorney John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in that trial. John takes us on his journey from the very beginning of his involvement with the case, through the trial, and through the death of Robert Durst on January 10th, 2022. In our last installment, John and I concluded our discussion of day eight and began to chat about day nine of his cross-examination of Robert Durst. On today's episode, we conclude our deep dive into Bob's time on the witness stand by focusing on the final questions of Lewin's cross and on Dick DeGaron's redirect examination of his client. That's coming up right after the break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A few quick program notes. Because the interviews had to be conducted by phone during one of John's early morning or late evening neighborhood hikes along a busy coastal road, the quality is often not optimal. We will clarify when it seems critical to understanding Lewin's narrative. On today's episode, John Lewin discusses the final days of Robert Durst's testimony, and we begin by looking at the moment when Lewin confronted the defendant with his apparent unconscious revelation about his wife, Kathy. Here is that excerpt as we presented it in Season 2, Episode 29 of this Jury Duty podcast, followed immediately by John's comments on that exchange. All right, Mr. Durst, it's your sworn testimony that you have no idea what happened to Kathy, correct? Correct. And you've also testified that you are unaware of any crime scene, correct? I agree. You don't know if she drowned somewhere, correct? Correct. So, Mr. Durst, if you have no idea what happened to Kathy and where she is, can you please explain why you said this this morning? Please play A. You are now saying that the point of that was you're trying to get a plea deal, correct? Correct. And a plea deal, the point of a plea deal is, is that in the end, in order for your plea deal to come to go through, you have to give us what you're offering on your end, and we have to give you what you're requesting on our end. Is that correct? Objection. Uh, Overruled. Overruled. Statement of the law. I never said I knew what happened to Susan. I never said I knew where Kathy was buried. Stop. Mr. Durst, why did you say you never said you knew where Kathy was buried? How do you know Kathy's buried at all? Seemed like a logical thing. Well, Mr. Durst, would you agree that you talking about the fact that Kathy was buried would seem, Mr. Durst, to be implying that you know, in fact, that she was buried, correct? I was telling you what I thought you wanted to hear. 
Wait, you're not saying you were trying to get a plea deal this morning while we were in court, are you? That's this morning. So I said, Barry, I misspoke. When you say you misspoke, Mr. Durst, was I talking about where Kathy was buried? You were talking about a hypothetical if she was dead. Did I mention her being buried at all? No. Who's the only person that mentioned her being buried? Me. So a couple of things there that are interesting. I'm hitting Bob on the issue of he is saying, in essence, yeah, I said that, but I was making it up because I just wanted to plead you. So where I'm going on that is on the idea of, well, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense because in the end, you're never going to be able to get a plea deal unless you can actually do that. So his point is, I'm just saying whatever to get the plea deal. But he understands you're never going to be able to get the plea deal if you can't deliver what you're offering. So that's where I'm going. In the midst of that, Bob fucks up and mentions about killing Susan and where Kathy is buried. Now, that's not directly responsive to the area we're going on, but it's an example of the longer Bob is up there and the more things he has to answer for, he ends up giving out information unintentionally that he doesn't want. So basically, him saying where Kathy is buried, there's no other way around it. Your position is you don't even know if Kathy's dead. So where's that from? Well, where it's from is that you're answering a question. You know you've buried her, and you forget in answering the question that it's extremely inculpatory when you say it that way. So, again, that's kind of the importance of really listening to the answers that you're being given. I don't know if I told you this before, but there was a very famous DA in our office named Vince Bugliosi who tried the Manson case. And here was the issue with Bugliosi. He wrote down everything in advance, every question, every argument, and he read them. And what would happen, because I know some lawyers who work with them, is that a witness might say he asked a question, and the witness in their answer might give out some incredibly important information. But Bugliosi was looking at what's the next question he's going to ask. So he would miss important information because he's reading. You have to listen to the answers you're getting because those answers might open up areas that you weren't counting on. There's no way that we can imagine in advance that Bob is going to say where Kathy's buried. There's not even a question that I can ask to get him to say that. And if you look at it, Bob fell in his own trap. We were talking about the inconsistency of him saying, well, I was saying all this for a plea deal. And so in very ineffectively responding to that argument, he opens up another gaping wound with this cop. So, yeah, that was the great thing with Bob is as long as he was talking and answering, there was a good chance he was going to make things worse. Next, I asked John about his questioning of Durst about statements that the defendant himself made that were captured in the so-called bathroom audio recorded by the producers of The Jinx. All right, Mr. Durst, I want to talk about what has been referred to as the bathroom audio. You're aware of this, correct? Correct. On April 18, 2012, at the end of the interview, when you were confronted with the Cerebrum note and the cadaver note, and could not say which one you had written, which one you had not written. What was your state of mind when that happened? I felt like he had caught me writing a cadaver note. And you walked in to the bathroom right after that, 
And before the door could even close, what did you say? I don't know. You said, there it is, you're caught, correct? I accept that. You have a habit when you get nervous of talking to yourself, correct? I talk to myself when I'm nervous and when I'm not nervous. And you would agree that while you were in the bathroom, Mr. Durst, you said the words, killed them all, of course, correct? I think what I said was, they all think I killed them all. Can we cue it up, please? I want you to listen, Mr. Durst. Killed them all, of course. Mr. Durst, do you agree that you said those words, those five words, killed them all, of course? I think I said what I just said I said. They all think I killed them all, of course. So you think that you added, they'll all think before the words, I killed them all, of course, is that correct? That's correct. Do you understand, Mr. Durst, that your attorneys have already stipulated that what we just played is unaltered, unedited footage? Well, I don't understand that. Now you're telling me. But I don't seem to mind pick up everything I said. Looking at the rest of it, it cried out that I was saying a lot more stuff than the mic picked up. So listen to my question, Mr. Durst. Do you agree that in the unedited, stipulated recording, that the only words that are on that recording at that section are the five words, killed them all, of course? I agree. So the problem for Bob is that there were many ways to deal with the bathroom audio. Many ways. Once they stipulated that it was unedited and unaltered. Now what you're going to be stuck with is, well, the mic didn't pick it up, except the mic is picking up everything. You can hear it. There's nothing it doesn't pick up. So Bob, as usual, tries to argue three mutually inconsistent things, and he argues them right after each other. And as soon as one gets eliminated, he goes to the second. So the first is, I don't think I said that. Well, you said it, here it is. I think I actually, the mic picked up, uh, didn't pick up the rest of it. Well, you heard it, the mic, you stipulated to it. Well, and then the next thing was, if you remember, well, I was thinking that. So what he ends up saying is, what he stuck with in the end is, well, this is what I said, but actually what I meant to say was, they'll think I killed them all, of course. It's absurd. Um, it was it was actually funny. Again, much of the damaging evidence in this case, it wasn't just that it was incredibly damaging. It was that Durst's responses to it were just laughable. I mean, laugh out loud funny. But you're going, wait, are you shitting me? Are you literally going to argue that? And he would. So that was fun. I enjoyed that. And again, we put him in the position, because of the stipulations, because of what the defense had argued, they didn't have a choice. Now, if you remember, in opening statement, I think in the first, in 2020, Dick had said something like, Bob knew he was being recorded and was, quote, playing game. Do you remember that? Yes. Now, they never returned to that thing. It's as if Dick threw it in an opening, forgot he had said it. It's not true, of course. And they never came back to it. Well, I know it's there. 
And I think at a later point in time, I asked him, you know, what your attorney said, you were playing me. What did you mean by that? I mean, again, you just, there are no good answers to any of this stuff. No good answers. It's all a disaster. And that's fun. There's nothing more enjoyable for me as a trial lawyer than basically crafting a very complicated cross-examination, you know, full of traps and maximum impact clips, et cetera, and seeing it all work out. You know, this didn't happen, and they didn't make the argument here, but sometimes lawyers will make an argument. They will they will say, well, you just, you know, that's unfair, Your Honor. They set up a perjury trap for the witness, right? And I always have thought it's funny with a, quote, perjury trap. What the hell is that? I guess what that really means is that you set my client up to think that he could lie and get away with it. He then perjured himself. You actually had the goods on him, and that's not fair. Because in his own mind, Your Honor, this is what they would really say, is my client thought that you couldn't prove the perjury. And the prosecutor didn't really make clear when he got my client to say X that he knew that he could disprove X. My client didn't, so that's not fair. Yeah, not a real compelling argument because most people kind of view it as, well, it wasn't a, quote, perjury trap. It's just perjury. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. In this next section, I discuss with John Lewin a line of his cross-examination that he told me was triggered by a Durst statement that he discovered on our website, crimestory.com, that was written by our reporter, Charles Bagley. The clip of that piece of cross-examination is again from Season 2, Episode 29 of this Jury Duty podcast. During your cross-examination, you told me that you saw something on our website that Charlie Bagley published back in 2015, something that Bob said to him, and it prompted you to pursue this line of questioning. Mr. Durst, I want to talk about Charlie Bagley for a moment. Mr. Bagley is someone that you know pretty well, correct? Correct. When did you first start speaking to him? Shortly after my gal was in trial. And you agree that no one ever forced you to talk to him. It was 100% a voluntary decision on your part? Correct. And you agree that the vast majority of those conversations were on the record, correct? I thought they were all on the record. And how many times do you think you've spoken to him? Is it likely dozens? Correct. Now, Mr. Durst, at the time that you were talking to Charlie Bagley, that was 
after you'd been acquitted in Morris Black's death. And so you knew that you could not be prosecuted for his murder again, correct? But you knew there was no statute of limitations on murder with relation to Kathy and Susan, correct? So you were also aware that every lawyer you had spoken to was telling you not to talk to the media, correct? That's not correct. A lot of people encouraged me to talk to the media. Mr. Durst, but you agree that you were talking to Charlie Bagley at a time when you had already perjured yourself in Galveston and at a time when you knew that you had written the cadaver note but were lying about it, correct? Correct. So what made you talk to him? Why would you do that? Was it cockiness or arrogance? Why did you do it? I thought he would write something fair and positive about me. Mr. Nurse, isn't it true that on February 6, 2015, two days before the Jinx miniseries started, you told Charlie Bagley regarding the Susan Berman investigation, quote, it's a long time ago. Some DA would have to commence a major budget-busting investigation. I don't see that happening, end quote. Correct? Correct. So you thought that in essence, Mr. Durst, you were in the clear regarding Susan Berman. Is that right? Correct. Tell me about that moment when you found out about that and confronting Durst with it. Well, the quote about you know, a DA would have to launch a budget-busting investigation was not anything that I had ever seen before. And the reason is because, you know, if Charlie did not print it, you know, if it hadn't been in the paper, it's nothing that I would find out about. Charlie was very, you know, as a journalist, he was very concerned with his reporter's shield and was not repeating any information that he'd not already printed. He understood that anything that he printed, he could be compelled to testify to. So I had never seen that printed before. I don't think it had ever been printed before. So when I saw it, I thought it was interesting. Now, obviously, is it a major revelation in the case? No, absolutely not. But it was interesting because what it demonstrated was it gave you a bit of an insight into why Bob did what he did. Because remember, Bob is extremely careless and he's egotistical and he's entitled. And those qualities lead Bob to do stupid things that other people would not do because they would be afraid. So most people who know that they've killed three different people are not going to be talking about what happened because they're going to be worried that, oh my gosh, if I say something, you know, what if they pick it up? What if that results in investigation? But I think what had happened with Westchester is that historically, if you look at what happened with Kathy, the case had been originally investigated by NYPD very poorly. Nothing had happened. There had been a reinvestigation 17 years later by New York State Police. Nothing happened. There had been information out there that Westchester had continued with that investigation for several years up till the in the early 2000s, and nothing had happened. He had beaten the case in Galveston, so he knew that he was safe there. And nothing had ever been done in Susan's case for 20 years. So I think Bob believed that, you know what, I don't have to worry about anything. And so now the question is, is what's going to win out? Bob's fear of something negative happen if he talks or Bob's desire for attention. 
And Bob's desire for attention is a monumental desire. It's ever-present. It never goes away. So I think what happened is, is Bob kind of did the math and said, hey, I'm safe. I can say whatever I want. Nothing's going to happen because for it to happen would take a level of investigation, he believed, and a financial and resource commitment that, as far as he knew, my office had never undertaken in the case. So I think what that statement said to me was, oh, okay, that's why he agreed to do all this. And certainly, you know, I loved it because there's nothing more fun than having some guy who's killed three people basically in advance say, yeah, I can say what I want because you're not going to do anything, knowing that, yeah, we will do something, and that's going to be your undoing. So it wasn't that it was a great revelation. It was just that it was, you know, a juicy little tidbit for us. (laughs) Got it. Your last two questions on cross were, Mr. Durst, you are just about done with your cross-examination. You have now admitted that you have perjured yourself at least five times during your testimony at this trial. And you have stated that you would perjure yourself to any question involving whether you killed Susan, whether you killed Kathy, or whether you killed Morris. That is what you have stated, correct? Correct. Can you explain then, Mr. Durst, given your history of perjury while you have testified and your statement that you will continue to perjure yourself regarding any of those three critical areas, how is anybody supposed to figure out when you are telling the truth and when you're lying? They would have to use their life experiences to decide if what was brought up at this trial is meaningful in terms of whether or not I killed Susan Burma. Would you agree, Mr. Durst, that if somebody looking at this case decides that you know what? Bob Durst confessed to Nick Chabin that if in fact that statement happened, you agree that's incredibly damaging. Is that correct? I have repeatedly said I did not confess to Mickey Chavin. And Mr. Durst, you would agree that if somebody listening to your audio where it says, kill them all, of course, decides that you said that and does not believe your explanation, that that is extremely incriminating, correct? Kill them all, of course, sounds like it's part of a Peterson. Except when you listen to the audio, all you hear, you would agree, Mr. Durst, are the five damning words, killed them all, of course. Correct? There's a whole lot more than I said in the math. Mr. Durst, this is my last question. As you sit here right now, I'm going to ask you, did you kill Susan Berman? No. But if you had, you would lie about it, correct? Correct. Nothing further. Why did you end with those two questions? Well, I think those were, if you look at it, those were the key questions in the whole case in terms of credibility of Bob's testimony. So the defense, as we've discussed, never seemed to understand that Bob wasn't just damaged. Bob was DOA. He was dead on arrival in terms of his testimony. 
there's nothing that he could have done in his testimony that was going to help him because we had the admission from New Orleans that if he had committed these crimes, he would lie about it. So the defense took the bait. They put him up there and, again, shockingly, asked Bob both in direct and redirect if he had killed Kathy and Susan. So, I mean, it just set it up. It's kind of like how many times can the other side throw you the same devastating gift? And they kept doing it. So I always made sure that I was going to end on the idea of, hey, listen, no matter what he says, you don't have to believe me. Listen to what he's saying. He's telling you, if I did this, I would lie. So his testimony's worthless. Lewin and I now move on to discuss the redirect examination of Robert Durst by his attorney, Dick DeGuerin, which we covered in Season 2, Episode 30 of this Jury Duty podcast. On redirect, Dick tried to get Bob to say he only used the phone in the kitchen, but Bob ended up saying he used both. What was the significance of that? Well, I mean, where do you start? So first of all, he couldn't have used the other phone because it was unplugged. The second thing is he said that the one in the kitchen didn't work, and that was a big problem for him because the one in the kitchen, clearly, if both phones were unplugged, we could show that they were working right before Bob was there and right after. So it's, again, kind of a typical thing that DeGarren and Chesnoff would do, which is they would see that there was a problem, but they would only see it at level one. So everything was only looked at in a very limited scope. So they're going, well, we need to show Bob only used one phone, okay? So here's what we'll do. But they didn't understand that by doing that, one, you have to have explained to your client. They have to have gone through stuff, which clearly they didn't. And number two, you have to have a goal of where you're taking things. And again, over and over again, the defense never had an overriding goal, strategy, theory, nothing. It was the kitchen sink. It was inconsistent theories. So, yeah, that was just added to the list. On redirect, DeGarren brought up the Lenox Hill rehab and tried to suggest that Kathy could have done the rehab because classes would be over by that time and she was doing rotation. When you heard him do that, what did you think? So, number one, it's impossible so Dick is trying to say, well, classes are, are done, which, by the way, I don't think he understood throughout most of the trial that Kathy was not in classes at the time she disappeared. He would constantly talk about classes. The problem for him is, is that if she's doing rotations, it's even worse because you're on a service. So you can't have a scheduled interruption of your service because when you work for a service, you work for that service. You're assigned to them. You're like a, you're like a resident or an intern. That means when you're on that service, you're there all the time they need you. If you're on a service that is not a clinic, for instance, you're on like, you know, whether it's radiology or it's general surgery, whatever it might be, you are there when you're on call, you have to be there as soon as they call you. You can't have a schedule I'm going to be leaving to go to drug rehab. Not to mention the whole idea of how are you going to be explaining to these people where you are and what you're doing. I mean, it's patently absurd to the point that you wonder, did they even think about what it meant? I mean, did they even consider, hey, we're going to argue that Kathy was undergoing drug rehab at a different hospital while training at this other hospital? I mean, it's preposterous. It's beyond stupid. It's laughable. Again, one of the problems that they had in this case was it wasn't just that their defense didn't make any sense 
or even that it was offensive, which it was. It was that it was so bad that the response to it was laughter, not even anger, although there was some of that, the way they really tried to destroy her reputation. But the basic response was, are you kidding me? It was, wait, what? And that's her response, that when you're a trial lawyer and your jury's looking at you like, are you kidding me? That's worse than even we don't believe you. That is, oh, my God, this is so incredible, it's funny. So we're past this is offensive. We're past this is not believable. This is actually entertaining. Oh, what do you have next? What crazy Bob story are you going to come up with next? So that was asinine. There's no other way around it. Let's talk about Darren on redirect bringing up Susan's November 5th letter to Bob and trying to argue that Susan wasn't asking Bob for money. Would you take me through your cat and mouse game with Bob about the ask for money and your reaction when DeGarren brought it up again on redirect? So the first thing is this letter, if you know Susan, was absolutely asking for money. That's what Susan does. Susan's very subtle. She's very smart. She's very calculating. She's very manipulative. So it was clearly asking for money. So the question is, how do you get Bob to admit that he knows she's asking for money? Well, the way you get Bob to admit it is to ask your question in a manner to make Bob think you want him to say that she's not asking for money so that he will do the opposite, which happens to also be the truth. So I shake my question on cross, something effective. Now, Susan wasn't asking you for money in this, right? So I knew that Bob's response would be, of course she was asking for money, because one, she was asking for money, but two, he wanted to take the opposite of whatever point he thought I was trying to make. This is a tactic that worked with the defense and the lawyers over and over and over again. Whatever strategy they had in this case, and it wasn't much, it seemed to be whatever Lewin wants, we want the opposite. And whatever he doesn't want, we want that. Once you know that code, it's pretty easy to break and manipulate it, and we did that from start to finish. That's how we got the 80 stipulations on the case. So in any event, when I asked that to Bob, Bob, of course, responds, well, anybody, of course, is asking for money. And anybody reading this, can tell she's asking for money. So now, on redirect, Dick is going to try to get Bob to say, which he does, that no, no, she wasn't asking for money. But it's as if he doesn't even remember what Bob previously said. Bob was very clear she's asking for money. His line was, and anybody reading it would know she's asking for money. So it was yet again a extremely poorly executed, poorly planned example of a lack of strategic thinking and lawyering that was, in essence, the model for what the defense did in court every day. You already addressed this last question, but I figured I'd let you hit it one more time as the final thought on Bob's testimony. Dick ends with the question about whether Bob killed Kathy and whether he killed Susan. What was he thinking? I don't think he was thinking. I don't think he ever understood that that question is not asked in a vacuum. It's as if he didn't know anything that had ever transpired in the case of so Bob saying repeatedly, I would lie about it on tape. So why you're going to ask him that question and frame that issue for me repeatedly? It's almost like he wanted to make sure that at the end of the examination, he would set me up for a knockout shot every time. Just incredible. I can't explain it. I think it's unexplainable. Listen, there are certain things that lawyers can disagree on. Okay. strategies that one lawyer says, hey, you know what, I would do this. Another lawyer says, you know what, no, that's a bad move. There are other things that are just absolutely, without question, 
moronic and poor lawyering. That was moronic and poor lawyering. There's no excuse. There's no justification. There's no validation for it. It's just bad. So I have no idea. I have no idea why he, why they continually did that. But listen, it was certainly helpful, so I guess all I can say is thanks. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. Join us on our next installment as John Lewin and I begin our look at the closing arguments in the trial. Also, if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You can find more information about this trial at CrimeStory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. The episode was co-produced, written, and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. <laughs>